Of all our greatest searches for purpose and value in life, no bigger search exists throughout humanity than our search for meaning. Celebrated psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl, in his groundbreaking book, Man's Search for Meaning, shared this insightful view. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. On today's show, we explore reshaping our language of struggle and fear in order to find gratitude in our challenges. To borrow from the great Albert Einstein quote, the most important decision we make, the one which is most aligned within our essence, is whether we live in a friendly or hostile universe. It becomes our responsibility to then decide whether we act in harmony within our responses, creating our existence that contributes to the forward motion of humanity. Join us on this very humorous and thought-provoking conversation with leadership coach and motivational speaker Michael Ian Cedar of The Legacy of You on Becoming More Grateful on this episode of The Light Inside. Have you heard of Saqqara Metabolism Super Powder? Because our friends at Saqqara are providing life-changing nutrition, allowing you to nourish your body exactly the way you want. Here's the science behind why Metabolic Super Powder is such an important part of maintaining your sustainable health. Many of us may not know the important role our metabolism plays and why maintaining a healthy balance is so important. Metabolism is the multi-step chemical process allowing our bodies to convert food into sustainable energy. In short, it creates the fuel that drives our bodies. Factors like genetics, age, sex, body composition, height, weight, diet, activity, and hormone balance determine your basal metabolism, which is the energy expenditure needed to sustain life. Three signs your metabolism is slowing include bloating and puffiness, unexpected and stubborn weight gain, especially in the midsection, as well as fatigue, low energy, brain fog, and anxiety. This Sakura Life bestseller fires up your metabolism, stabilizes blood sugar, eliminates bloat, and decreases puffiness. The perfect remedy for metabolic slowdown caused by age, diet, and stress. Restore a healthy metabolism to experience weight loss, improve mental clarity, and sustained energy. And Sakura has a naturally rich, low-sugar chocolate flavor, perfect for smoothies or simply mixed with coconut water or nut milk. And after using Sakara for a month, I can't imagine balancing my metabolism any other way. So if you are looking for functional foods backed by science and guided by spirit, Sakara was created by a scientifically backed board of medically sound doctors. You can find out more about Sakara and their amazing line of life-changing nutrition by visiting Sakara.com. That's S-A-K-A. RA.com to find out more and you can receive 20% off your first order by using the simple code REVUP20. So try Sakara and light your inner fire.
Today's show holds special meaning and value for people who really want to make a difference in the world. Joining us is motivational coach, group facilitator, and motivational speaker, Michael Ian Cedar, as we share this conversation on how being grateful as f- will empower you to pursue your passions productively. Hello, Michael, and thank you for joining us. How are you today? Howdy there. Doing good. Pleasure meeting you, man. I love your mission. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise, I've been diving into your material. Yeah. Everything I'm seeing is just so full of light, positive energy. That's the goal. (laughs) I'm doing a lot of listening. Do you ever listen to anything by David Data? No, no. That's one I'll have to check out. Oh, I think you, seeing what your mission is, I think you would totally love David Data. He wrote the book called The Way of the Superior Man, which sounds like, you know, a total like, whoa, chauvinistic big book. But it's just about (laughs) consciousness energy. And it's about masculine and feminine energy. But anyways, a lot of it's about light, right? It's about where's the light? Where's the authenticity? Authenticity? Or the authenticity? And how do you ensure that you're tapping into that? So look, though, you know, as you know, this is even a podcast, right? Even though the tech is maybe imperfect or whatever, as long as the message is authentic, it's going to vibrate with somebody, hopefully. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm going to have to check that one out. That definitely is right up my alley. When I uh, met my wife, I listened to the audiobook of it. So first off, the book's probably great itself. There's three audio versions of his book, The Way of the Superior Man, and one of them is read by him. I've listened to it. So when I met my wife, I was like, wow, I really want to understand this dynamic we have. I knew of the book and I listened to it not only once, but I listened to it like three times in a row. And then I just bought his like canon of material and I started listening to it about a week ago. Really? And it's just great. And he does speak to men and I'm a man who's more in his feminine. Like I, my wife is the masculine in the relationship and I'm feminine in the, you know. Tends to be the case here sometimes too. <laughs> yeah. Is it? Yeah. And I mean, I don't mean I'm the girl. It just means I'm the creative. I'm the flow. I'm the change. And she's a lawyer. She's like, this is the rule. You know, it's the consciousness. It's what it is. But anyways, just so much of the, the David Data stuff is about how do you ensure you're just showing up fully and accurately and yes. living in purpose, which is very in line with your mission too. Let's jump in a little bit. I want to start off with your past, your history, what led you to coach others to create a more authentic difference in the world, to become more aligned with their positive side? So the question is, is what got me to coaching? No, we're going to go right with the conversation. See, it's all about a conversation. (laughs) Yes, yes. Let's start in there. I love this story. It looks like if you looked at my resume, from a standpoint of the journey I've taken, it looks like I'm all over the place. In my, I originally started as a bar mitzvah and wedding MC, yes. and I did that for 13 years, and I started super young doing that. And then I transitioned into being, well, I went to school to be a performer. I'm sorry, I went to school to be in entertainment, but I studied under the guise of, well, if I understand the performance attribute, I'll be able to produce and do other things. 
And then I became a company manager for Broadway shows, touring Broadway shows. So I toured with shows in bus and truck tours, taking groups of people around the country to 130 cities in 10 months at a time. Oh, wow! Then I became a dance competition producer, producing uh, events for 40,000 dancers under the age of 18. And then I started transitioning into coaching and then went into coaching full-time. So it looks like it's all over the place. But if you actually look at everything, I'm really, it's actually something I'm super proud about in my life is yes. there's a through line through it all. And the through line is creating environments for people to be uninhibited to get something and learn about themselves. So even rewinding the tape as far back as being a bar mitzvah and wedding MC, I just liked creating an environment where people could remove any fear of being themselves. And so even though I was super young in my teens, I would pull my team together and be like, look, our job is to remove any blocks from people feeling fear and letting go, right? And so I didn't realize that was coaching, right? That was... And then everything else, if you just look at it, is I just wanted to create environments or experiences where people could reflect and learn about themselves. And so when I was producing these large-scale shows and company managing these massive Broadway shows and taking them around the country, the one thing that I found consistent was I really didn't like managing people, but I loved <laughs> leading people. I didn't really love going like, hey, look, the bus call was 5 in the morning. You came down at 5 a.m. Can we get our shit together? I just didn't like like having like I didn't enjoy doing that. It had there was no joy in like telling fully grown adults like get you know come on and then yes. so I fell into coaching itself. So I found that I just loved the coaching of things and I loved helping my teams be the best version of themselves. But I actually disliked the actual technical attribute of you know are you on time today <laughs> or hey you didn't hit your call goals today and like I just wasn't rewarded by that. And so I started years ago. We're talking 15 years ago, I would meet with friends being like, can we play with this new idea that I have? And I would sit down with my friends who are just as I'd like to think I was motivated and hungry. Hungry, I guess is the good word. Hungry as I was. I would remember even sitting down with my friend Kate in the Marriott Marquis in Times Square probably 12 years ago, being like, let's talk about what you're passionate about. And she's like, okay. And like, we'd spent like two hours and I would ask questions. And so it A-B test different work with my friends, not with the guise of, oh, I'm going to be a coach one day, just with this thing of like, how can I help people get more out of their life? <laughs> And then I just, right time, right place, uh, a coaching company was ramping up for a massive organization that's popular in pop culture, and they just exploded. And they're like, hey, we know you're interested in coaching. You've talked to us about it. We need some coaches to work with some young creative types, and all of our coaches are people in suits and ties. And I was like, great. And so I found the world of coaching. It found me. The world of coaching founded me. Yes. Yes. And this is, to summarize it all, is, now I don't have children. Do you have children? Three grown. So I don't have children. Yeah, they're all, all grown and on the road. Three grown children. Are you a grandfather yet? Pardon me? No, no, not yet. Not yet. No grandchildren. So this is the best. Lauren and my wife and I, we decided to go child-free in our lives. Yes. But my friends that have grandchildren, 
they say it's the best of everything. I'm not the parent. I get to love them. And at the end, I get to return <laughs> and, and then they get to come back. And so what I found about coaching is it's probably like grandparenting. I get to love these, my coaches, right? Yeah. And then at the end, they get to go do their own thing and then they get to come back and, you know, we get to talk about it. But it's not the management side. It's just I get to love you side. I get to nurture side. I get to listen to you side. I get to be there for you side without needing to be like, you didn't hit your sales goals this week, you know? (laughs) So I did the transition fully into coaching, which is what I've always done, but I've just taken out the parts of all the jobs I've done, which were wildly fulfilling, but the parts of the jobs that weren't fulfilling. And that's how I got to become a, I call it a leadership and life coach because I really don't know how to separate the leadership from the life and the life from the leadership. I I just don't see how to do it. And I've had a few coaches who have wanted to separate it and it just wasn't a win situation. You know, it just wasn't a win situation for both of us. I'm not here to help people get stock options. I'm here to help people have a fulfilling life. I love that whole notion of looking at that from the angle of how do we love others? Yeah. How do we turn that into a love and nurturing? Mm -hmm. How do we create a more positive state of being by caring and nurturing others, by inspiring and instilling in others? Well, I truly believe, and we could go into where this mindset came from. I think I've tracked it down. Again, I've always been hungry my whole life, but I've always known what I want to do since, I mean, I could go back to eight, you know, it's just probably my first like conscious, okay, I can make decisions in their, their mind. And I've always known what I want to do, but I never knew how I wanted to do it. And that was the part that was so painful for me. But the part that I knew was there were people who I saw in my life who seemed aligned and vibrant and full. And I grew up in a really unique town and full of artists. And my father is an artist, a musician. And uh, then I saw people doing things and my friends doing things because they had to, (laughs) you know, like friends working at pizza parlors. And I remember being like, why do you do it? Like, well, to make money. I go, but why do you do it? And like this idea that people would do things just to make money was so foreign. (laughs) I didn't understand it. I didn't judge it. I didn't understand it. And so I just remember believing really early, like, this is so in line with your podcast in, in essence from what I've seen. And that is, I believe everybody has a purpose and a purpose isn't to do something specific. A purpose isn't to be an actor or to create the best podcast or a purpose isn't to make filtered water for the world. Those are vehicles to deliver (laughs) your purpose. And so it pained me to see people in my life not doing things to fill something they need to do. And I truly believe and always have that if more people in the world or everyone, let's just go to utopia for a second. Let's go to a quixotic view of the world. If everybody pursued work in a life that was meaningful to them, I just believe we'd have peace and harmony. Yeah, you know, I think we're looking at a more balanced equation from that end. And so often we create all of these other languages that we're speaking to ourselves, we're speaking to society. Subconsciously, we're operating on. Mm -hmm. On that note, can you share with us why developing the continued practice of always focusing on the bright side is so important in aligning us with that more positive state of being? Are you talking about gratitude? Yeah, let's start with gratitude. To me, that's a great place. So it's really interesting. So I run a group called the Gratitude Slam and 
it's an intimate group. It's got right now 1,300 people. I'm looking forward to it continuing to grow, but we have a super high engagement rate. We're looking at like an 80 to 90, depending on the month, an 80 to 90% engagement rate. And um, it's only recently doubled in size. In a year, it doubled in size. And and I'm really careful about cultivating that audience because I want it to be the right audience. And the reason I'm telling you this is so many people are like, oh, Michael, the gratitude guy, right? And I've had people say, the group's not for me, which I'm fine with, right? <laughs> and they're like, I'm just not a positive person. Or they might say, you know, I've had some pretty big trauma happened in my life. And I saw you Ben Hardy on the show and he talks about trauma, right? You the little T yeah. and the big T. Yeah. You know, and people who have had the big T trauma. And so they'll say like, I've had the big T trauma and I just don't have it in me to see the positive. And so what's interesting is as I continue to explore why gratitude uh, is, is such a central part of my life, it's not to focus on the positive. It's gratitude is not about finding the optimism, right? I've got a mug in the other room that I only use with selective clients. It says eternal optimism, <laughs> you know? And I do think I'm an eternal optimist, uh, but I also think I'm an eternal optimist that has a really deep ability to fall into dark places and depression, you know? It's, it's duality. Yes, there's a balance. There's a balance. There's a balance to everything. Yeah, it's it's the you know I saw you were quoting Young on the website and I was like oh great you know I love duality you know and duality conversations and conversations about duality and gratitude is about being realistic and saying what do I have right now and where can I build from it yes yes and the gratitude slam grew tremendously during the time of COVID where I think people were very life's happening to me mentality. People like, this stinks. (laughs) I have no control. And so it's like, there's a total reactive mechanism that the uncertainty that I think COVID surfaced for people and it created great anxiety and depth. And what I found the Gratitude Slam did and people were attracted to it. And it wasn't people were finding it. People were inviting their friends into it like mad dogs. Like, oh my God, there's some kibble over there. Let's all go right now. So the gratitude is about being realistic. It's about saying, what do I have right now that I can play with and where do I go from here? Because, right, we could dwell on the regret and resentment of what this has done to our life, but sure, looking at what I wish or what wish for is looking at the future and feeling bad about what hasn't been able to transpire in this idea of ambiguous grief of what hasn't happened. I'm not saying we can't feel the grief, but Yes. Yeah. Living in the past and living in the future doesn't serve us, right? As a coach. And I, I, I think my job as a coach is to get people to focus on the present, what I have right here. Here now. I, I'm so in line with you today. Yeah. yeah, no. When I saw what you were about, I was like, ah. I think that'll come to light as we progress here. <laughs> yeah. When I read about your kind of style of work, I was just like, I go, well, if nothing else, I'll meet a great new friend. Yeah. Yeah. I've been so looking forward to this one (laughs) as all of them, but this one even more so, I believe, because it was like, I could feel that vibe already. Yeah. Oh, oh. (laughs) (laughs) so so now that we've had that moment of bro love this morning, (laughs) I, I like looking at that notion that we try to control so much in life. I love talking to people who are like, and and that's why I think you'd enjoy, I, I know you're editing the David Data stuff. Do we truly ever control anything? And that's a, a theoretical question. 
at the brow. I'm not meant to unravel an answer right now today, but do we ever truly control anything or do we simply benefit more to move into flow with things to find a better state of I'd love to unpack it now. It's yeah. All right. Well, let's jump into that a little bit. My my wife even (laughs) said to me the other day, she's just like, I don't know how you've made it through so much adversity in such a, being COVID, in such a short period of time and thrived. And so, yes, yes. I'd say my biggest growth in life has occurred during the past six months of COVID. And I think it's because I was able to take everything that I've learned from other masters, right? None of it's mine. And go, I can be reactive or I can be responsive right now to everything that's going on. And I was like, I'm going to emphasize my knowledge of responsiveness, the ability to respond to circumstances. And I'm just, as you said, I'm going to flow with it. And I've had the largest growth of any professional career I've had over the past six months, while the world has had a massive amount of uncertainty. And we can truly say the world, right? Like for the first time, we can say everyone, you know, there's this global. So often we're looking at that limited worldview for once it really is a global issue. Yeah, for the first time, (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So I literally, so since the locusts were falling from the sky, it is a world issue. I'm really, I really was like, yeah. myself. and I had my moments of getting triggered, right? I live in Midtown, New York, and yes. I look down on Macy's and the mm-hmm. Empire State Building, and, and that's where the riots happened. And I've never seen anything like that. And yeah. that was enough to trigger any normal functioning human being of, wow, what is happening to me, my life, my environment, myself, the fear, not understanding what white supremacy fully isn't i'm a white male right yeah and watching the city literally burned down i saw three bombs thrown at my building and we packed bags because we're like we have to leave and so there were my moments of truly getting like a cat on the back with the hair up you know and not knowing what's next and so we're winding the tape and going back to the initial conversation we're having of what do we control and what we don't control first i've got to give homage and i haven't read this book in years but got to give homage my take on what we control and don't control comes from ishmael by dennis quinn have you ever read that yeah yeah i have man i just it sits on my shelf and i'm like one day i will get that in my queue again <laughs> and i learned a lot and i read that in my early late teens excuse me and 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 that you know that exposure to that mindset i think had an impact on me Yes. And so I think, I believe we only can control one thing. And that's our response to the stimulus around us. COVID has proven we control nothing, right? I, yes. Again, during the riots, I was like, I don't control my home. My home just had one of those, whatever they're called, those bombs, several of those bombs thrown at it, right? I need to evacuate, possibly. <laughs> don't know where my next job is, client, you know, I was losing clients, like being a leadership coach in corporate world. People are like, we're cutting, we're cutting, we're cutting, we're cutting. You know, it's just like, everyone's like cutting ties until further notice. I mean, it was literally like March, what was that day? March, March 13th. And clients were like, cut, 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 right? I was like, whoo. <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay, how can I respond to this? And I was like, hey, I'm here. I'm still going to coach you anyways <laughs> because I made a commitment to you and the transactionary nature of coaching, I'm going to drop it because I need to adapt right now. Yes. And so to answer, my belief is we don't control anything but our response to things. And, and then I go, okay, well, what happens if something like a bus yes. hits me? Well, I might not be able to control my pain, which I do have control of that to a limit of what I accept or don't accept for my body, <laughs> but I still can control my, am I a victim or am I a creator? Yes. You know, and so I play with this a lot and it's hard to do, right? I am human. By no means am I saying I have mastered this. I'm far from mastery. 
Yes, yes. But I'd like to think in the times that I get triggered and within 24 hours, I can go, okay, okay. Let's bring it back. And one of the best definitions I ever heard is, do you know um, Jim Dethmer, Conscious Leadership Group? Yes. I, I took a few classes with Jim and Diana, and I just love this imagery that Jim said. He goes, it's like seagrass. Seagrass is this massively tall, thick grass. And he's like, it's like seagrass. And I was listening to one of your other podcasts. And I'm going to roll this back on and record real quick. Perfect example of rolling with life. <laughs> Sometimes when I do, because I do live on the gratitude slam, I do live recordings and the yeah. tech doesn't go on. I go, you know what? We're just going to keep going yeah. because I want to prove to the guests like yeah. imperfection is part of life, right? It's just part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So right in the middle of this conversation, Michael and I experienced a little electrical blimp on my end. Everything literally went complete dead for about half a millisecond. Yeah. But you know, here we are. We're going to scramble. We're going to jump right back in the flow of things. <laughs> we're going to keep up. So we're adapting and flowing. Because we're adapting. Yes. Right? Like the seagrass. We're adapting like the seagrass. We're going, okay, it happened. I can't <laughs> fight that the technology went down. I can't fight that the moment was imperfect. It is the truth. And that's, again, what gratitude is. It is what it is. And we're going to choose to view it as just another state of being and jump back into the positive. So positively, we <laughs> We were sharing this notion of seagrass at the bottom of the ocean and the flow of the universe divided our grass. Yeah. So let's jump back in and pick up. Where do we go from here with relaying the story of the seagrass? I'm down with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, from here, we're going to the seagrass. He says, you know, <laughs> if you see two ducks in a pond and there's like a, something to eat in the middle of the pond and they're both racing to get the pond one of the ducks is inevitably going to get to whatever it is to eat first, you know, grabbing the other ducks going to go quack. Right. And then <laughs> unlike us humans, we hold on to it. Right. We yes. now have resentment yes. towards the other duck or person in that case, or we have our anger and then we hold on to that for who knows how long, but the duck goes quack. And then it lets the motion flow through it. It adapts. And then it goes away. And there's no resentment or contempt towards the other duck. The duck just has one goal. Let me find some more food to eat. Mm. And I try to live. I loved that analogy. And so in the courses I teach, I call it be the duck. You know, and I give Eckhart the, the, the credit on that one. But yeah. I mean, like, and so people have really latched on. They're like, oh, I got to be the duck a little bit more over here. Be and the that's, duck. And that's my goal is to help people be the duck because I think if you can be the duck, if you could be the seagrass, if you can adapt, if yes. you can understand that the only thing we control is our ability to be responsible, our ability to respond to the circumstance itself at hand, mm -hmm. whether we like it or not, I think that gives us great control and power. And I think that gets us closer to finding the light inside of ourselves because I had one of my coaches say to me, yes. what you resist stays. And I just loved that idea. And if we resist the reality, that reality that we don't like is just going to stay and let's just get over it. And I'm not saying we can't feel sad. 
right? I'm very sad for the impacts COVID has had on my peers, my colleagues, my life, my, you know, everything. And and I'm not going to deny it, but it's that resistance to my sadness, right? One of my favorite ideas is everything of 2020. No, that's so not fair to say. So much of 2020, whether it's, it's COVID on your industry, on health, on family, whether it's the racial injustices or whether it's the political climate, there's so much anger right now. Yeah. And anger is energy against reality. <laughs> right? And look, anger is here to serve us, but I'm seeing so many people around me hold on to the anger <laughs> and blame the anger and keep the anger instead of going, okay, well, what's my anger trying to tell me? What do I need to let go of? What do I need to pay attention to? What do I need to learn more about? How do I, and again, I'm no master at this, but when I do practice, it helps me adapt. It does, you know? Yes, yes. Yes. You know, I love looking first at that fact that you just caught your own self going to what we tend to operate from in a generational mode, a kind of state of truism being where you said, we do these things out of habit and you caught yourself doing your own habit said, no, let me rephrase that and correct my energy. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm grateful for I'm that today. Grateful for that. And I'm grateful for you seeing it because I didn't even... It's not right. I say, so let's go back to this idea of gratitude. And this is a mantra in the gratitude slam, the group on Facebook. Yes. It's gratitude is an attitude. Attitude is a skill. Yes. A skill is a habit. Yes. And a habit can be learned. And so if we say that quickly, it's gratitude is an attitude. Attitude is a skill. A skill is a habit. And a habit can be learned. And that's why I built the slam was, well, there's a whole other reason the slam got built. (laughs) The dynamic of the slam is if we can continue every single week to come back to this idea of how can I accept the present and be grateful for the gifts in the present so I can use that as my launch pad to rock a ship off from, it becomes a habit. It helps me build a habit because 52 times a week I'm doing a live video on it and seven days a week I'm answering questions about it and building habits and to the point that, like you said, I caught myself. I didn't catch myself catching myself, but it's... I'd like to think more of a habit. I can fall out of the habit very easily. If I make a really nice pot of soup and I screw it up, you bet I'm falling out of that habit. There's no gratitude. <laughs> screwed up my <laughs> soup. That There's not a whole lot of joy in that if you don't find some joy in that. You know, you know, there can tend to be not a whole lot of joy in that. So yeah. In so messing yeah. up your soup? In messing up your soup. <laughs> No, I mean, look, could I find a joy in it? Sure, but do I get triggered in my human state, yes. my human form? Absolutely. Yeah, and so it is a skill. And and you know what? I One of the things I like to teach is it's so fun to watch people's reactions when we're talking about taking self-care and taking care of ourselves and building new habits. I go, oh, it's like the oxygen mask, right? When the oxygen mask falls in the airplane, who are you supposed to put it on? You or your child? And everyone goes, oh, you put it on yourself, of course. Well, why is that? So that you could be alive and tend to the child. And I said, but what's the problem with with the oxygen mask theory. I don't know. You're being selfish. I'm like, no, the <laughs> oxygen mask shouldn't fall in the first place, right? The oxygen mask is only for emergencies. And so if we build the habits of gratitude, if we build the habits of adaptability, if we can build them, we're not, it's not that we're not going to fall out of them, but if we can build them, we'll have them when we need them. And so I think what I'd like to see more for the world is for the ability to find gratitude, Mm. which is not positivity. More positivity will come out of gratitude, but you can be grateful in a time of deep grieving. 
Yes, yes. You can, right, not feel grateful, but you can experience gratitude in a great loss. I mean, look at Viktor Frankl, right? Mm. You know, I mean, he's talking about one of the darkest times of human history. And he's like, well, yes. where can I find meaning from this? We would talk about the people who were lucky enough to go right, you know, and be sent right. They would find the people that survived that and being in prison, they would wake up and go, I'm so grateful for the sun right now. And he said, they survived. They created an adaptability while he recognized that people who were imprisoned into the camps who couldn't find the meaning in it, the meaning in the suffering, they perished more often from disease or getting killed by somebody or something else. And this idea of going back to the idea of gratitude and adaptability is going, well, what do I have right now? Because man, that was some times where (laughs) there was not a lot to be grateful for, but people said, where is the meaning? What can I be grateful for? I'm grateful that when I get out of here, man, I'm, I'm going to be able to share this story with my grandchildren. And that was enough hope to go, <laughs> what do I have in the present? I have hope, <laughs> you know? I have the sun to look at. I have one piece of bread in my pocket, you know, and I wasn't there for it. I'm only going by what I read. You know, that's the very science of our existence. What causes us to be who and what we are? How are we present in the world? Let's look at that positive psychology, what we so often deem the mindset of it. How can we better understand why the human brain can easily sabotage itself? Well, we're, we're, science has proven this thousands of times over. And the human brain has a negative bias by nature. We got this far. I mean, I think sapiens are 300,000 years old, right? Am I yeah, something like that? Yeah. And we've been long before, way before that, you know. <laughs> but our biology got this far. We didn't have cell phones to order a pizza with or cell phones to look at the weather or cell phones. To, I mean, now I just actually, it's so funny. I just saw on my phone, I was like, update system, update your system preferences because now we can update you for COVID alerts. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Like, what does that mean? Like I'm walking by someone and it'll be like, do I want that in my system? Does that mean that now my phone will know if I have COVID and it'll warn other people? But Regardless, right, 300,000 years ago, we didn't have a COVID warning system that you're walking into a restaurant with three people with COVID. Like, I don't even know what it means. I was like, all right, well, I'll update the operating system. Anyways, I'm like, probably giving away more privacy, yeah. but, but we're negative biased creatures. We didn't have a positive mindset. We didn't go, look at that beautiful cat with long teeth. Let me go pat it and play with it. No, because we're <laughs> negative biased creatures. We went, holy crap, those teeth could tear us apart right now. Maybe I should fear that thing, yeah. right? So we didn't get here because we we're like, let's go towards everything that just everything's great. We went, oh, that fire's hot. Oh, I burnt myself the last time. Let me not touch it, right? And so we came this mm, far yeah. because we've learned to fight, flight, or freeze on things. We learned to play dead, <laughs> fight something, or freeze uh, or, or, or run from it, right? We didn't get here because we were like, oh, let's see what that dark hole would be like if I jump in it, right? And so we have a negative bias by nature. So the brain in a modern world where we don't have so-and-so saber-toothed tigers running from us, we don't know the difference between our boss wanting to give us a note (laughs) and the saber-toothed tiger running from us. The brain doesn't know the difference. We haven't evolved far enough, I guess. And I don't know enough about the human evolution. And so, so we have the ability to sabotage ourselves and we have the voices in our 
I call it the inner critic or, or yeah. some people call it the inner critic. I call it the limiting voice. And so yeah. when I, uh, a course that I run through the gratitude slam is called life on your terms. And people are like, Oh, that sounds so selfish. I'm like, okay, well you also thought gratitude was selfish too. So let's explore this as well. And so I'll consider living life on your terms is yeah. being able to identify what voice is yours as a vibrant human. Yes. And what's the voice of the limiting voice? What's the inner critic? And I, so I have people name it. <laughs> like mine's name is Tweety. Like, like, well, like Tweety Bird, like the, you know, intellectual property by Warner Brothers or whoever owns it now. Right. And so like, if people can go, all right. Oh, and some people give all different kinds of names. The name might be, uh, you know, Gerald or <laughs> Hercules or whatever. And so if we can recognize what's ours as human and what's ours as evolution, it helps people be able to separate that out. We were talking talking about this because we're talking about the limiting the self-sabotaging the good news is is when our minds are sabotaging saying you're not good enough you're not cute enough you're not pretty enough you're not skinny enough good thing is hey all systems are working right okay the diagnostics are checking out the voice the limiting voice is doing exactly what it's designed to do to keep us alive but that's where i go right we were talking about we'll never be stronger than that voice because that voice is nature we'll never be stronger than the ocean it's so much bigger and powerful in us, but we can be smarter than it. We can build a boat and get it across the sea. We can be smarter than the limiting voice and go like, whoa, 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 this fat comment voice that you just gave me, how is it serving us? Where's that coming from? Let's figure out what to do with that. I need to make a decision or I want to go talk to that person over there and you telling me I'm you know, overweight is not helping me. So I'm going to ask you to go in the corner with a box of trick cigarettes and cheese whiz and just go eat that while I go talk to this person, regardless mm. to your desire to keep me safe right now. I've got to make this choice on my own. And so this idea of we're humans, I don't think, I don't, at least in our lifetime, I don't think we're going to be able to become stronger than that voice, but I do think we can come smarter than it. It's so much older than us. It's so much wiser than us. But again, it doesn't recognize the difference of our boss giving us feedback on, without asking for it and a saber-toothed tiger running towards us. It's actually a really neat thing that I experienced. <laughs> I might want to just fact check this, but I remember I took a course with the Neuro Leadership Institute mm-hmm. and this was when people could sit together. And I remember, I don't know how they did this test. I don't know how they got this, but hey, well, science is so cool. So they had a, I guess it was an MRI of a brain of a person in physical pain and a person's and another, and it might not be an MRI, but what, however you look at a brain might be with a CAT scan. And it was an image of a brain that was getting unsolicited feedback. And the thing that was amazing was the two brains were lighting up in the same exact areas, right? Unsolicited feedback, being in physical pain, the brain just doesn't know the difference. It just wants to keep us safe and alive. We're looking there at that notion of temporal consciousness, how our thoughts exist in time in reaction to events. We look at, as a society, we have a tendency to facilitate between present, past, and future. Mm. We're we're looking down, you know, even further, there's a balance to everything. We're looking at the fabric of nature. Everything is either or, either or in response. What do you mean by either or? We have a choice ultimately. Yes. How we view either or at its basic element to take that even deeper. We look at the notion of sacred geometry. Mm -hmm. Every number is the root of another number. The notion that we either start at zero and add one. We look at computer code. It's based in the same premise. 
What's computer code? Zeros and ones. Nothing more. Zeros and ones. Yeah, and and yeah. It's, do I go left or right? Yeah. So we are wired by and large naturally to coexist with nature in balance. Well, we are nature. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but and at some point in time, and this is actually what that book Ishmael by Dennis Quinn is about, is about at a certain point, humans went, the planet's ours, (laughs) right? That's a really wild thing to go is when did we decide as a species, this is my planet? No other animal says that, right? No other planet is like, let's clear out these trees, (laughs) you know, (laughs) nature uses exactly what's needed. We're, I think we're the only species that uses more than we need. But I like your idea, again, going back to this idea, the, uh, the idea of duality of it's a one or a zero, or it's a good or it's a bad. And it's like Einstein's quote, the most important decision we make is whether we believe we live in a friendly or hostile universe. Is this for me or is it against me? There was a study done once on stress. Yes. And yes. I can't remember who did it, but it's super fascinating. It was a study done to figure out what is considered good stress and what is considered bad stress. And I can't remember where I read about it, but I just remember reading about the science to the scientists and the researchers going crazy. They couldn't figure it out. Yes. And it turned out that what makes it good stress or bad stress is if you believe it's good stress or bad stress. Yes, it's all, all based on the belief. What yeah. meaning do we assign, speaking back to your point, what meaning do we assign to anything we do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our thoughts, our actions, our emotions, our habits. Where are we assigning a meaning? How do we translate that language to call it what we feel? So, you know, there again, we're looking at, it's all a matter of, as you said, that choice of how we focus our view. And, and I'll tell you what I really want to help facilitate in my lifetime. And that is, this is really fun to be able to talk about with you, right? Yeah. Super easy yeah. to talk about you because this is just our area of, <laughs> of right? You know, it's, this is where we geek out. Other yeah. people geek yeah. out on the spines of x-rays, of um, stingrays. Other people geek out on yeah. arcs of scientific arcs of gravity and stuff. Our, this is ours. Yeah. You know, and, and I go, why do more people not know this yet and and i can only look at you know and and this is going to sound super mean and might in might might really hit people really hard but i i I really just go why is this not taught in kindergarten truth truth we are in the education system like why are we not talking about this in preschool in kindergarten in middle school in high school and and God forbid colleges would teach something <laughs> like this, right? And and we could go deep into this idea of, right, the light inside. Yeah. Man, you know, how much is college? 200,000, 100,000, whatever it is, in dollars. And I think one of the worst things that we do to our younger generations right now is pick what you want to do. Don't really care about the light inside of you and, yeah. And, yeah. and and go into debt on it. And I'm not saying I'm against school. I'm against the fact that we're putting people into school. Like there should be a prerequisite. Like, is this in line with your, <laughs> what the craft you want to go into? Is this in line with your value system? Yeah. Right. I think one of the worst things you you can do is accept somebody's money and not know if and let someone go through an entire program whether it's kindergarten or college and let them go through an entire program to know is this program in line with your values and so anyways yeah 
it sounds like I'm going on a tangent, but it is related. And it goes back to this idea of <clears throat> everything I do is, um, I give it the meaning. Yeah. It's yes. my responsibility to give it the meaning. It's not my teacher. It's not my mom's. It's not my boss's. It's my need. It's my responsibility to give it the meaning because it is, going back to our thesis here, the only thing I can control. And I just go, man, let's get this into younger people's minds earlier. And I, I'd, I'd say everything that I coach, people go, why am I learning this now? And look, I had the same comment when I was learning it. I went through crap in my life, you know, and had my tea trauma where I was like, why did it take me to my mid thirties to even for someone to even tell me about this? I think we've got a lot of room to, yeah. to do that. Yeah. And I think, and by the way, going back to the education thing, even though that's not our thesis of the day. Yeah. Let's is, earmark that. Cause to me, that's important. But here, yeah, let's earmark it. But here's what I have to say. I am really happy with what I am seeing. And I think again, yes. COVID is so bringing it out. I think education reform was really having a hard time peeking through the grass. I mean, peeking through the soil. And I think this that's happening right now, and I don't know what this is going to be. The seagrass has been parted. The, the seagrass has been parted, but I think that... Let's look. I, what's going on in there? I think the, the shaking of the snow globe of 2020 is going to a force education to go, how can we do things differently? So I, Yes. You know, I just have great hope that there's going to be enough people who go, hey, now that we can break the system and maybe life's not about SAT scores anymore, um, how can we teach these kindergartners the idea that you have a choice? Yeah. You know, I had Oprah, not I didn't have Oprah, but I heard Oprah in an in a audio book once say, uh, from her book called The One Thing I Know. The only one thing I remember from the entire book was she said, when I'm going through this shit, is uh, yeah. I got to ask the question, what is this here to teach me? I'm like, why are we not teaching that to kindergartners? Hey, hey, Bobby hit you. You're sad. Yeah. Hey guys, instead of going to detention, let's talk about what did we learn? Yeah. And not, what did you learn from this? You know, what is that here to teach you? That anger, what did that teach you about yourself, Jim or Bobby? And Jim, what did you learn about yeah. the way that that made you feel? Let's talk about that. Like, why? You know, and, and we've got to, yeah. So I just think there's a lot of room for us. These conversations, I think one day people listen back to a podcast and this podcast and uh, hopefully 200 years from now and go, wow, we've, we've got this one down now. <laughs> you know, I hope that's what people say. Yeah, yeah. To me, it was so ironic that as we started to venture down the path of looking at education in the background in your environment, I'm hearing the sirens of alarm. Yeah. We are kind of in a state of emergency with our current situation of education. Generationally, it has eroded. Generationally, we may have never constructed a system of education that was ever truly founded on informing, inciting, and creating value and meaning. Absolutely. Can we go back and earmark that yeah. in maybe a whole nother conversation? Let's start looking at those things. And there again, that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it, again, we could talk about that for a week. And Seth Godin, yeah. I think Seth Godin yeah. really nailed that with Stop Stealing Dreams. If you actually look at the um, anthropology of yeah. the modern day, <laughs> that's something I'd like to toss around with you at a future date. Let's earmark that and you and I come back. Earmarking, earmarking. So, yeah. on that note, yeah, that's one thing that leads to some of this gap we experience, some of this breakdown in what creates our psychology. 
What creates our existence? What creates how our brains work? Let's go back and look at those three notions of fight, flight, and freeze. At its very essence, first, let's look at how we typically term that fight, flight, or freeze. We should rearrange that Mm -hmm. fight, freeze, flight. Rebalance that because the two are reactionary. Flight is reactionary. Fight is reactionary. Freeze is kind of that state where you should be non-reactionary for a moment, where you pause and evaluate. Well, I think I totally agree with you. I think in the terms of evolution and the amygdala, which is the land that decides, do we fight, flight, or freeze? Yeah. I think the freeze yeah. is the play dead, right? <laughs> you know, and, and I think what I'm saying is, is accurate on, on this. So, yeah. but fight, flight, or freeze is, is just like, you know what? You get, okay. I had to pull my thoughts together. I'm here. So Harry <laughs> now my curve at you. Sorry. Yeah. No, 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 no. It was, I was trying to, cause I, I didn't want to um, push back on what you said. Yeah. I just want to make yeah. sure what you said holds true into science itself. One yes. of the things that's yeah. super important to me though, I certainly have my moments of woohoo is yeah. I always tell people that I coach as I go, if I can't prove it with science or studies, I'm not going to talk about it with you because I can, I can talk about crystals and diamonds and gemstones with the best of them. Yeah. But when it comes to wanting to evoke change, I want to make sure I'm doing it in a way that's tried and true. So here's, here's what I was, what I was saying. Five letter freeze is, is, is our primal selves. Do I fight with it? Do I run from it? Or do I freeze and play dead? And so I'm married now to Lauren and it's just like, wow, wow. How can I teach more people this exists, right? But prior to that, I was, uh, before I got to mm, get more comfortable with myself and my emotions and raising, you know, learning what I needed to learn to, again, what is this here to teach me? I was in another marriage that I never anticipated to end. I didn't get married for it to end, but I, um, I wasn't comfortable with myself. Right. And so when my, in my first marriage, she would say things and, Oh my God, I would freeze. And it was not a good thing. Like I would shut down. It would literally be like, well, what, what? it could even be like, well, Hey man, what, what do you want to do today? Like, stop, stop thinking about just me. Like, what do you want to do today? And I'd be like, <laughs> I'd literally freeze. And, and, you know, I'll definitely take my fair share of why that yeah. relationship didn't work. But a huge part was, yeah. yeah, I would get stuck in the freeze. So I, I don't want freeze to sound like I don't, for the purpose of our conversation, I think there's a difference between freeze and pause. Yeah. How long is that freeze? I think becomes the greater equation if we're going to talk about scientific matter and formula. How long is that freeze? And then what do you do to proceed beyond it? Yeah. Well, I think, well, I believe the freeze (laughs) is so in line with flight and fight. I just think they're all tied in together and they're reactionary things. But pause, I could be angry. I could want to fight and go, whoa, let me pause. I could want to freeze and catch myself freeze and go, whoa, instead of freezing, let me pause. I could want to run away and go, whoa, 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 let me pause and bring it back to, right? This is, this is so fundamental, but again, why is it not taught in kindergarten? Yeah. Let me bring it back to my breath again. Bobby, you want to punch Jimmy? Let's breathe for a second, Bobby. Let's breathe for a second, Jimmy, right? And just merely talking about breathing, those two things, right? Breath is 
the biohack mechanism, the breath indicates to the brain what state we're in. But yet nature, for whatever reason, has decided to give us that voluntary control. Mm. We can breathe, which is something we don't have control of, but we do have control over it, meaning it's an involuntary function that we have the ability to control. It's one of the only things to influence it, yeah. We have the power yeah. to influence the breath. So isn't that crazy? Can't control my gallbladder. I mean, <laughs> sure, I could do things to manipulate it. Can't control yeah. my heart rate to do things to manipulate it. But my breath, I can both control and, and let involuntary functions do it. And so the breath is so tied into, if I start doing charged breathing into my chest, dude, just doing those two breaths up into my upper chest cavities makes me want to punch you, right? And I have no reason to punch you. Just doing that makes me want to, I literally am sweating right now from doing just those two breaths. And so when we're in a state of fight, flight, or freeze, our breath is naturally going to change. You don't see James Bond breathing deeply. James Bond is always in complete control of his breath. He's not in fight, flight, or freeze. He's just in a state of responsiveness. Oh, a a knife's being thrown at me. I shall duck. Oh, somebody is trying to electrocute me. I shall back up three steps, right? He's in complete control of James Bond is always in control of his breath. And so that ability to recognize when your breath is being restrained or shallow or recognize when you're triggered, whatever that feels like to be able to pause and go, Hey, if, if you know, on a fundamental level, one way or another, what is this moment here to teach me right now? First yeah. off, that takes the blood out of the, it, the, so the blood does when you're triggered into something that puts you into habits or fight, flight, or freeze, the blood literally goes from the logic part of the brain into the primal part of the brain, right? And so we have the yeah. you know, brain chemistry is way more complicated than this, but to simplify it, the neocortex, which is where words come from, logic comes from, the ability to manifest our imagination comes from. The blood, immediately, if someone punches you, the blood literally is going to go right to that center part of the brain, right? The fight, flight, or freeze part. By going, whoa, <laughs> whoa, why am I being triggered? What we're doing is we're telling the blood to go back out to the logic parts of the brain. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah. Anyways, to, to tie it all back. Let's go back, go back. Is, like, we like have a conversation tab going here. Like, okay, let's yeah. make sure we see some more tab. Is I think if we can pause, if we can build the habit to pause when we get triggered, if we can build yeah. the habit when we freeze, if we can build the habit, freeze in the sense of literal paralyzation almost, which is what I experienced in my first marriage, I would be paralyzed. And there's no reason to it. It didn't serve me to freeze. It just, it was, I didn't recognize the difference between my partner saying how she felt and a saber-toothed tiger running at me. But now I can go, okay, what is this saying about me? What am I doing to evoke this? Where's my role in this? And I can go, what's this here to teach me? And so we can pause. Yeah. If we can teach that pause sooner. If we can teach the pause to children, Imagine what our world would look like if we could teach the pause. That pause creates the state to say, how do I exercise a more positive choice? What is the positive choice? What is the negative choice? It's back to that simplistic either or of zero and one. Zero and one. Mm-hmm. Do I move toward that state of nothingness? Do I move toward that state of negativeness? Or do I move forward positively? Mm-hmm. And and define positively versus negative. For you. There again, yes. positively, what assigns value, meaning, and purpose in your frame of reference? Yeah. And that's not for me to say right. what someone else's positive is. That's not for me to say 
what yours is. It's only up for me to make the choice. How does this influence and impact me? And then also evaluate how can I use that with a purpose and meaning towards someone else if they are involved? Well, it depends what level of consciousness one person is at, right? If we really want to go deep on the consciousness level, (laughs) this is so what I hear you saying is your definition of positive is do I want to make this a conscious decision or an unconscious decision? Do I want this to be about present reality? And right. And then do I want it? Depends on value system. Exactly. Uh, Look, we're a social species. We're here designed like, we're packed animals. We're designed to be in groups. We're designed to be together, which is another reason COVID has screwed a lot up because we're not in our packs anymore a lot of times. But we're designed to serve one another. You ever see the documentary Swarms? Yes. Yes. What a fascinating documentary. Like we're just insect. Well, we're not insects, we're <laughs> primates. But like we we're we're packed animals, you know? We're here to serve one another. And so the reason I'm talking about this is this idea of how conscious am I? Even if I don't want a future with the person sitting in front of me, I'd like to think if we're really leaning into our genius and we're really leaning into our light and we're really leaning into our higher sense of purpose, then we're going to want to go in this conversation. What, can I do where I can speak my truth where it serves both of us, even if it hurts the other person or it even hurts me. And for me to, again, give it, assign it a one or a zero, assign it positive or negative. I think it's, if you're really conscious and you have, and assuming good intent for the people that we're referring to ourselves here, I want the best possible outcome, even though the best possible outcome may hurt one of us. Yeah. I think if you really go from a place of good intent, then assigning the positive value, right? What you were talking about is how can I say something that it serves both of us and doesn't withhold anything that could hurt us, right? Because sometimes we don't say things to not hurt our spouses or our friends or our, the stranger next to us, but sometimes what needs to be said is hurt. And I, I look at that as positive, it ends up in hurt. And I, I do look at that as positive because it's truth. I, I don't know who said it, you know, and I don't maybe I made it up, but it's not all that is beauty is true, mm-hmm. but all that is true is beauty. I'm going to sit with that just a second because to me that has so much weight. That has so much weight. Now, looking back, we look at that notion of fight, struggle. So often, as a society, we are embodied by that notion of struggle. At its very definition, fight is a struggle. It's a resistance, yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. To resist opposition. I found it curious today as I was prepping up because I was looking at that notion of fight, flight, or freeze. It came to my attention that we literally have three to four times more ways to voice and put into language the notion of fight and struggle than what we do with freeze or flight. To me, it was curious that we place that much energy in even engaging that notion of a negative state of something that is in resistance in opposition. Mm. 
So you're saying you see fight to have more resistance than fight or flight or freeze. Yeah, to me, to me, and it seems like when you study on a whole, yeah. you know, I'm fascinated with watching the language and manner in which people connect and interact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right now, more than any time that it's ever really come to my attention, I see that language literally of struggle, of struggle, literally pointing out everything being a struggle, which to me, both consciously and subconsciously perpetuates that notion. It plants that thought seed. Well, there's to be able, it takes no energy. It takes no cognitive (laughs) energy for struggle, right? Yeah. It's a reactionary thing. And so it's my favorite struggle. My favorite, this is where I love humans so much. (laughs) It's, it's like when it's raining outside, I don't need to open up my Facebook or Instagram feed to know how everyone's feeling. Or not everyone, so many people, <laughs> right? And just this resistance against that it's raining outside, right? You know, it's raining outside. My day has been ruined. Well, that's yeah. that's just stupid to allow the weather to dictate how you're going to feel. Yeah. And so the struggle against the weather, I have anger against the weather. Again, anger being energy against reality. <laughs> what? That's just ridiculous. And we all do it, including me, right? Yeah. But, and so just at this super simple surface level it's raining it's cold it's hot and so it's super easy to blame and feel the struggle because it requires no responsibility no ability to respond to the circumstances (laughs) instead of going oh it's raining outside Hmm, i'm gonna get an umbrella and i'm gonna go outside Putting one ounce of energy other than that, right? Where can I respond to my circumstance? And so struggle, it it takes no responsibility. Responsibility. So responsibility takes a massive amount of, number one, let's just say it, balls. (laughs) Taking responsibility takes a massive amount of cognitive energy. However, it requires only a fraction of the energy of the consequences of being reactionary. But the upfront payoff of being able to struggle is so much better because I, my ego doesn't, my, it's not me, it's the rain. <laughs> it's not me, it's my mother-in-law. It's not me, it's my ex-wife. It's not me, it's my recalcitrant child. Yeah, it's something new and different. Yeah, it's there again. I love that you're going down this path with but when you're willing to take responsibility and go, hey, what's making me feel that way? Hey, it's raining right now. I don't like it. I was supposed to have a picnic outside, social distancing picnic. <laughs> what can I do now instead and still invoke the same experience I wanted from that? Because I can't change the fact it's raining. Or do I have a picnic outside with an umbrella? Oh, that would actually, that, that sort of excites me even just riffing off that. Yeah, let's hear the story. <laughs> yeah so so that's why i think it's easy to struggle we're negative bias creatures it takes no energy the ego is going to always be right if we're struggling and coach man i can't in this conversation stop coming back from this we got a pretty good split pretty big split there is struggle in life like there is and i guess again is does the struggle have meaning or is the struggle against me right what is the struggle here to teach me and ooh, if there's time i'd love to tell a story yeah 
It, it's not a story about me. It's a fable. It's more of a fable story, but it goes into your theme of struggle. So a guy's walking in the forest yeah, and he sees a uh, twig with a chrysalis, a cocoon of a caterpillar hanging on it. And there's a big thunderstorm coming and this chrysalis is already blowing in the wind cocoon. He goes, oh my God, if I leave this to sit here, the chrysalis is going to hit the ground and the butterfly won't be able to come to life. So I'm going to take this butterfly, the twig, I'm going to break it off gently and I'm going to bring it home with me and bring it indoors so the elements don't knock it off of the twig and have it never come to life. Takes it, puts it in a little bud vase and it's sitting there and it's, it's hanging and, and it's staring. The storm comes and it's rattling the windows and this cocoon is just perfectly sitting in its, on its twig. Storm goes by. The next morning, guy wakes up. He's sitting at his dining room table or kitchen table and he sees and he's eating his breakfast and he sees the cocoon starting to move and he starts to see like the butterfly you know this one's caterpillar now butterfly trying to peek out and so he goes oh my gosh it's happening right in front of me this is so wonderful what timing what amazing how wonderful that it was already primed to come out and now it gets to and he sees the butterfly struggling right? You know, the sees the butterfly struggling so hard to get out of its cocoon. He goes, oh my God, I'm going to, this poor butterfly is trying so hard. I'm going to help it. So he goes and gets his utility knife, a little razor blade. And he sees that there's different layers to this cocoon. And he goes, I'm going to just make a little incision on this cocoon for the butterfly so that it can just break out and just be out and not struggle so hard. And he takes the surgical knife and just super thin, just super thin gets that first layer. And and the butterfly just spreads its wings and opens up and falls to the table. And he's like, oh, this is so great. And it falls there and the butterfly's there and it's trying to flap its wings. But it just keeps its limp wings are just limp the entire time. And then he goes, Oh God, what happened? I didn't nick the butterfly. I didn't do it. I mean, I literally got just the first layer. I mean, there it is. The cocoon's fully intact still. And the, so he goes, Oh God, the butterfly's hurt. And you know, he's a bit of a humanitarian takes the butterfly, scoops it into a little box and takes it to the vet and tells the vet, look, I, you know, just helped it. And, and the cocoon and the butterfly fell out. And the vet goes, Oh, this butterfly is never going to fly. He goes, Oh, why? Did something happen in its, in its transition from caterpillar to butterfly? He goes, No. Mm. He said, By it being in the cocoon and coming out and it's struggling to come out, by the struggle, the butterfly is pushing the blood into its muscles that move the wings. Mm-hmm. And you bypass that process by opening up the cocoon. And and so the butterfly never had the struggle to push the blood towards the wings. And so now it doesn't, nature didn't get to run its course. The butterfly doesn't get to move the blood to the muscles that it needed to. And so by helping it, you actually crippled it for life, right? And so <laughs> that's the story. And so there's this idea of, the struggle was to help it. Yeah. But as humans, we screwed this one up. We go, when I struggle, when I suffer, the world is against me. The world is happening to me instead of the world is happening by me. The butterfly's not sitting there going, well, this sucks. I can't get out of this cocoon. The butterfly's just going, this is how I fly next. 
Yes. So, so many of us, it's easy to look at our struggle as life's happening to me. It's easy to look at COVID as life is happening to me. And please do not underestimate the fact that I recognize people have had great loss from all of this. And I cannot take that away no matter how hard I try. But we can look at it that we're a victim. Yes. The butterfly was never a victim in its mind. The human made the butterfly victim, you know, said, oh, the human's being a villain and it just needs to get out. That's fascinating. I love looking at that angle now that you brought it up and speaking to that point. Nothing comes up that isn't ready to be healed. If we're struggling with it, it's because it's time for us to address it. And, and look, we could go for some super traumatic things that happen in life that I don't want humans to go to, but I can't stop that they've happened. Yes. And I can't oh, yeah. stop them while they're happening in most cases. Right? When I say I, me, you, they, us, human society. What is a biological struggle? And, so, and what is a perceived and created struggle? Binary one or zero was the butterfly struggling for its, was it positive? Was it to serve the butterfly or was it against it? The moment we look at the struggle as being against it, we just screw up all of nature. As a parent, you probably see it, right? You don't want your time to struggle, but that's part of the process is they have to struggle. Relating that right to that parable, what is the natural biological struggle for existence versus a created perceived mindset struggle. Oh my God. Yeah. That's a ponder thought. Yeah. What is going to realistically hinder me from spreading my biological wings, so to speak, and observing life to fly. I feel like that kind of brings the conversation full circle today. With that thought in mind, if you were to offer one nugget today of truth or light, one nugget to become a positive force in life for our listeners. What is one nugget of truth we can share today that will inspire somebody to spread their wings and fly? Take as long as you need on that one. Yeah. And just this morning, <laughs> Let's search that. I've got a lot of projects happening. And just this morning, I was like, all right, let me take my to-do list and put it into my calendar. Right? <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> let me take my to-do list and put it into my calendar to make sure I <laughs> favorite definition of stress that uh, is stress is a uh, struggle. So we can do this with struggle. Best definition of, of struggle is when there's more time than there is space. Meaning on my calendar, I had more time to put onto my calendar than my calendar would allow. And so here I am struggling. I'm like, Oh, this is awful. I don't have enough time on my calendar. And I went, wait, slow the F down Cedar, you know, I get to make my calendar, you know, you know, but I was suffering inside my calendar. And so that was a perceived struggle. I said, let's just stop this and I can delegate to my team. I can just move my projects around. I have to let something drop, whatever it is, you know. And so what do I have to learn here? Oh, that I need to get delegate better. And there again, we fall back, not necessarily, but we move into alignment with the notion of your truth is your own, no matter who you are. Yeah, we could we could walk that analogy for a few hours, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great <laughs> question. It's a great question. And I think the first thing that comes to mind in regards to everything we've talked about is build the habit of accepting truth. I know that sounds crazy. I've never said it like that before. Yes. Build the habit of accepting truth. <laughs> I yes, I'm even referring to even more tangible. Yes. And my own truth plays a role in that, right? If I feel sad, that is a truth. That is a fact. You cannot 
argue, it is an inarguable thing to say, I don't feel sad, right? Now, what is creating my sadness might be because of uh, uh, a fake reality, right? I might be, I'm creating, you know, but I'm just saying somebody said I was mean. And by them saying I'm mean, I'm hurt. Accept the truth. To, to, what was it that I said? I already forgot what I said. Build the habit of accepting the truth, right? I can fight back and be like, I wasn't mean. <laughs> That's not accepting the truth. And it wasn't that I was mean, but it was somebody I love thinks I was mean. Hey, you felt that I was mean towards you. You experienced that I was mean towards you. Help me understand that, right? That's building the habit of accepting the truth. That's a, instead of being reactionary about it and struggling because you said I was mean, <laughs> right? I can go, tell me what that is. Let's talk about that. And then I can go, okay, well, my truth is I said it because this is the third time I've asked you to change the toilet paper, <laughs> you know, when it runs out. And that makes me feel, right? So now it's my truth. And this is what happened on a fact basis. And on a fact basis, it makes me feel disrespected, right? And now we are talking about it. Or maybe the truth is, I, I'm going to share the habit of a truth story. Great story. Yeah. I'm even going to use the you know, a friend of mine, We'll call her Maria to protect the innocent. A friend of mine, Maria, who I don't talk to on the phone very often, and she's a middle school friend. She calls me, she sends me a text and goes, hey, coach, right? Which makes me go, uh-oh, something's happened in their life. <laughs> and right, you know, so I get on the phone with her and she goes, so I need to move. I need to sell my house. And I said, oh, okay. Why, right? No, no, but I need to sell my house. I'm really pissed off about it. I go, well, why? She goes, my neighbor died in January and the house went to his son and they're renting it out. I go, okay, cool. And they're renting it out to four college kids. Yeah. So I'm really pissed about this. I wanted to talk to you because I'm just so pissed. I don't know how to calm down. And I said, mm. okay, so what are you angry about? Why are you moving? There's well, four college kids. I go, okay, what about it? I go, well, I'm going to have a frat house here, right? This is going to be a party. I've got two kids. I said, so they've already moved in. Nope. Have you met the kids yet? Nope. I go, okay, whoa. I go, so where's this moving? Well, I've talked to all my friends and, and they all so far have said I need to move because this is going to become an inhospitable environment with solo cups in the front yard and big Jeeps and loud music. I said, I'm going to stop you right there. I go, what do you have control of in this situation? What don't you? She goes, moving, right? I'm like, okay, right? So I said, well, what else do you have control of? And, and we came down to, oh, I have control of being a, the uh, ideal neighbor. I go, what else do you have the control of? I said, finding out their truth, finding out their intentions, what they're going to do. And so I said, how about you do this? Instead of putting your house on the market, you go up to them and you say, hey, I want to tell you my truth. I heard that four college kids were moving in next door. And the story I told myself is there's going to be silo cups on the street corner. And this. she goes, I couldn't do that. I go, well, then sell your apartment. So she actually, so she actually, writes me the, the two days later she goes i actually did what you said i told them my story and they said we wanted to get off campus because we couldn't study there was too much partying happening turns out they need some extra cash they can babysit the kids turns out they're deep into to weightlifting which she is and they said they both own technologies that they could use for each other i said you already called your realtor and so that's what i mean by building the habit of accepting the truth 
of like, just let's learn when we're making up stories. I'm not saying let's stop making up stories because we're pattern-based creatures, but let's learn when we're doing it, catch it, spot it, have the conversations. And maybe it does mean put your house on the market or maybe it means something else. I don't know, but accept reality. I love the line from the Truman Show. Did you ever watch the Truman Show with Jim? Yes, just recently, actually. Uh, great movie, <laughs> man. You know, and Kristoff, the character of Kristoff, played by, yeah. I can picture the act, Ed Harris, right? Kristoff goes, we accept the reality which is presented to us. Take that moment to breathe, stop, and let the truth unfold. And so, right, and so we accept the reality, you know, of the neighbors moving in and being college kids and having keggers all night and so that's the reality we presented to ourselves and to look for the truth more. Search for the truth. Yes. Pause. There's that pause again. Need to pause. That's a great way I feel to end things today. Mm. I appreciate this so much. This has been such an insightful, thought-provoking conversation. Well, as I'm going to be thinking a lot today. Yeah. yeah. And those, to me, are the best kind, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You challenged me a little. And you challenged me too. I loved it. You also there are times that, you know, I don't know how much. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you, my friend. Oh, thank you. We got to, well, we can learn from one another and see ourselves, you know, learn about ourselves in the eyes of others. If, you know, I know that we'll be editing here, but there was a lot of deep pauses from both of us. And, and that just demonstrated to me, we were willing to explore the truth and explore yeah. what does it mean or state our beliefs. So this was super enjoyable. Thank you. Well, thank you. Where can our listeners go to discover more about you, more about your program? Yeah, I mean, look, most immediate thing is the Gratitude Slam. Yes. Uh, and that's on Facebook. Just search for Gratitude Slam and you'll find that. And that's the best place to find me. It's super fun. Super. That's such a fun project. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for giving me the time to share something that hopefully can engage your audience in a further journey of self-awareness. Well, I would encourage our audience to go out and check that out. Thank you, my man. Likewise, if I can be of service to you in any way, please reach out and let me know. I would love to do this again. <laughs> well, thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. And I appreciate you. For Frankel, meaning came from three possible sources. Purposeful work, love, and courage in the face of difficulty. We are all on that path which leads us toward our search for meaning. Our adversities can become our greatest assets when we develop the skill and habit of exerting gratitude for the journey life leads us on. Life often throws us a curve where circumstances are beyond predictability. We move closer to finding the light inside ourselves when we align with gratitude, becoming aware of the meaning and purpose life is guiding us towards. We evolve towards the essence of being human. Michael and I shared our insights on the purpose and gratitude, but we wanna know, what lessons and insights are you grateful for in today's show? Share what inspired you by sharing us with a friend and tagging us on social media at The Light Inside. Join us next week for the final episode of our 2020 season as we share a discussion with the joy pusher Aaron Thompson, exploring how experiencing a life that sings with joy is an act of improvisation on The Light Inside. <laughs>